0: Uh, Now that we're especially on really a different side of both the legal and even pop culture views. At that pinch, we all start to ask some basic questions. And the basic questions are, what should we think of same-sex marriage as a people? And what is the proper and godly response to this situation that has arisen in our culture and left many of us feeling like strangers in a strange land. Now, these questions matter to us because the pressure's on. The pressure's on culturally, the pressure's on in the workplace, the pressure's on in a great many places about how we handle this issue, uh, both outside the church and, yes, as I've stated already, inside the church as well. Because even inside the church... Uh, outside the church, people are asking, hey, didn't Jesus accept people and love people as they are? Even inside and outside the church, didn't he say that he loved broken people, even broken sexual sinners and accepted them? And in Revelation 22, didn't Jesus say he would come and make all things new? And wouldn't that make even marriage new And how we understand it? These are some of the questions that are arising in our midst, and, and uh, it brings us to the question of has marriage actually changed as uh, we know it from Scripture? Has uh, God even shifted in His view? Well, today we're going to talk about this relatively new cultural challenge around same-sex marriage. And uh, we hope to do so in kind of four big points. So stick with me as we kind of go through these today. And the, the four will be, we're going to talk about the four M's, all right? I'm going to be a preacher for you today. And that would be the four M's of modeling. Uh, of the maxim of makeup and of master plan, modeling maxim makeup and master plan relative to marriage. And so our starting point today will be around the model of marriage, the model of marriage that shows up in Genesis 2 in the very first wedding that takes place in Scripture with Adam and Eve. Now, you've got to remember Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 are related to each other. Genesis 1 talks about Adam and Eve together and how God speaks to them as image bearers in a general sense. Genesis 2 kind of dives into the particulars of what actually happened relative to that particular, maybe that sixth day that, that God did all of creating of things. And so uh, what we find out is God creates Adam first in Genesis 2, uh, calls him to work and to guard the garden. He gives him a covenant of what it means to be in relationship with God as Lord of all. He even uh, gives him animals to name and to practice sovereignty with. As, remember, uh, Adam has had all these animals come by and he's naming them, you know, platypus and things like this. Or maybe he's using even the Latin terms that some of you are learning in college as we, from the past. In any event... One of the struggles that Adam had in the midst of Genesis 2 is that he feels lonely. He feels lonely. And uh, what God commits to do in the midst of his loneliness is to give him someone who would attend to his loneliness. And God commits to making a helper for Adam, a helper in a woman in particular, Eve in this case for Adam in particular. And Eve would be God's daughter. He would be the bride of Adam. And you got to remember Eve, when she was created, as it says in our text in Genesis 2, was created from the side of Adam. And being created from the side of Adam, you have to remember that this is symbolic and significant in Scripture. You see, Eve was not created from the head of Adam, that is, that she would be over him, she wasn't created from the feet of Adam that she would be under him. She wasn't con- created from the back of Adam that she would be behind him, or even from the front of Adam that she would be um, in front of him. She's created from the rib, from the side of Adam. And this, it's symbolic of how they were to work together, facing God's purpose in their lives for his glory together in their marriage As they were put together. It also illustrates how they were created, as we find out in Genesis 1, with equal dignity as image bearers, but in this case in different roles, as Genesis 2 says. More to come with that in a few minutes. So when God puts man and woman together, He puts them side by side in their unique sexuality. Now the wedding piece comes in verse 23 of our text today, where Adam wakes up, sees his gorgeous wife for the first time after he's gone under surgery with the rib thing, and look at what he says in this verse, he says, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. That whole bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh thing, that's Hebrew poetry, and guys, I know enough Hebrew to kind of translate loosely what that means. You ready for that? It means hubba hubba. He sees his wife and he's like, man, she is really beautiful. This is what I was looking for, not the platypus for crying out loud. So he's really happy about this and he proceeds in this bone of bone, flesh of flesh language that she comes out of man to, to highlight how their sexuality is different, but they're made to be together. That they're one and yet different at the same time. And Adam, uh, as a result, promotes, uh, actually gives a vow of marriage. You know how we take vows in in our weddings? Well, this whole bone-of-bone, flesh-of-flesh language, that's a vow of his commitment to care for his wife, who is the daughter of the Lord God Almighty. This is glorious stuff. But Moses goes on in the next verse to summarize what marriage is to be all about. In verse 24, look at what this says. It says, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." Hear those three things there. There was a, the man would leave, and the, implicitly the woman would leave as well. Their families, they would hold fast to each other, become one family unit, become one flesh. That's not just physically, that's in their whole being, spiritually, in a whole host of ways. This is a clear definition of biblical marriage being between one man and one woman, even for a lifetime. In fact, I might even tell you that this is what we would call in Scripture, in technical terms, a prescriptive law that states what marriage is intended to look like by God. Adam and Eve's wedding as one man and one woman is the model for all marriages to come. Now, similar at this point, way, I say, well, hold on just a second now. Aren't we talking about the Old Testament? And should we even take this Old Testament thing seriously after all? Because there are a lot of laws, maybe even prescriptive laws, that we don't want to take seriously in the Old Testament. Why should we take them seriously at all? Well, let's be clear. This is a classic argument in our day of why we shouldn't listen to the Old Testament part when it comes to marriage or even homosexuality, among other things. But here's what we would say. Some laws in the Old Testament actually do not apply anymore to us in our time because they applied to the theocracy, the combination of church and state that started with Moses and ended with Jesus in Israel. But everything you should know about marriage happens way before Israel and the theocracy comes along. It happens in Genesis 2, which is a creational mandate, not a governmental mandate. This transcends all cultures and all peoples and what mankind is supposed to appreciate and practice in marriage itself. Somebody at this point may say, "Well, okay, so that's part of that." But what about Jesus? What does He say about marriage? I mean, after all, Jesus uh, does uh, kind of say in some places that some parts of the Old Testament, like eating certain foods, no longer applies. Like in in Mark chapter seven, for example. But our response would be this. In in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says the following, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus would affirm uh, some laws, even prescriptive laws, of how marriage should be that transcend even the, the laws that were particular to Israel. In fact, Jesus himself talks about this Uh, at length in further parts of the gospel. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19 right now. It's an important scripture. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Now, it is common to say in our time, when it comes to Jesus and how he handles marriage, that Jesus never said anything against homosexual marriage. You would hear that in many cases in our time. And if you find, look in the Gospels, in fact, you will find that Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexual marriage. And then what people say is that they'll progress and say, well, well, then Jesus also was all about love, and he would surely support something where people love each other, And because Jesus is all about love. That's the kind of logic of how people invoke Jesus' name in the whole, um, the whole uh, same-sex marriage question. Now our question today is, is that true? What does Jesus actually say about marriage uh, himself? Well in, in Matthew 19, which we looked at some weeks back, you should know, Jesus talks explicitly about marriage and his vision for marriage between a man and a woman, and he's speaking as a single man. In fact, look at verse four of chapter 19. Uh, He's been asked about divorce, which was the hot topic at the time, still is in our time. Now, we have same-sex marriage to add to that. But Jesus is asked about divorce, and he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. Hey, where have we read that before? Jesus just quoted Genesis 2.24. We just read in our text just a few moments ago. Then he adds this maxim to the whole thing. And he says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There is his maxim. What God has joined together in the man and womanness of marriage, uh, the one flesh union that goes in that, uh, for a lifetime, let no man separate, is what he's saying. Now, Clearly, Jesus is putting this out uh, as uh, as a statement about marriage. And it is true. He never says anything about same-sex marriage in the Gospels. But here's the problem with that argument. That's an argument from silence. He never said anything about genocide. Jesus never said anything about child abuse either. He does, however, give a prescriptive law in this text affirming what Genesis 2 says about marriage between being made up of one woman and one man for a lifetime. So Jesus, a single man, who never married, affirmed the biblical view of marriage, a consistent view that goes across all of Scripture as being between one man and one woman for a lifetime. In other words, in as much as our culture wants to invoke Jesus' name in this whole argument, uh, Jesus makes it very clear what his vision of marriage is and this prescriptive law that he's given to us. Now, at this point, we got to ask, now how did we get here? How did we get to this whole same-sex marriage thing? Now, it's a complicated story, but I want to tell you a little history to kind of help us understand. Uh, what i 've learned in recent months that i didn 't know myself but have learned is that actually same sex marriage has existed in the ancient past. There is evidence from uh, the roman uh, the Roman historian first century roman historian tacitus he 's a secular historian, not a Christian historian who told uh, who described nero that 's right the nero that you 've heard about burning down Rome and things like that that Nero uh, was actually married to a man at one point, even dressing with a veil. That's what it says in the, in the historic account. And that he eventually married a boy. Um, pederasty was an actual practice in that time where you married younger boys um, as older men. Now, you and I would kind of be offended by that, and even probably most Americans would. So let's take old Nero and push him to the side for a minute, because he's kind of a bad example in so many ways as a twisted dude. Let's come forward, though, the 1960s to our time, uh, where in our time in the 1960s, the Civil Rights Movement came, which all of us would give praise God God for. But along with the Civil Rights Movement uh, came a real freedom movement that was really a social revolution. And particularly uh, attached to that civil rights movement was a revolution of sexuality in things like abortion, in things like homosexuality. And with that that cultural revolution came massive changes in how people viewed certain things. Fifty years of of hitching civil rights and sexual uh, freedoms together has led us to the point that we, that uh, the cultural argument is if you keep people back from who they are sexually, you must be oppressing them. Uh, I don't think that's always a fair argument. In fact, I think it could be potentially offensive to those who originally promoted civil rights and among our African-American brothers and sisters back in the, in the 60s. But surely... What we can say throughout the centuries is that in every case in every culture, both Christian and pagan cultures, there have been problems with cruelty to homosexuals. Uh, There is historical evidence that the Vikings and the Celts would often kill anyone suspected of homosexuality. So such hatred is not something that we would promote in our time, that we would, as Christians would actually carry out or endorse. But there is more to the story, and this is kind of the spiritual point of our time here in the history. And it really has set, it, set us up uh, with these issues of same-sex marriage challenges. And that is not just the rise of same-sex marriage challenges, but the decline of of heterosexual marriage, over the last fifty years and since the '60s, with the rise of no-fault divorce, among other things in our culture, there has been a serious decline uh, in the ser- in how people uh, t- enjoy and participate, even in heterosexual marriage. On some level, we have. To hear Jesus' words about broken marriages, let God put, let, what God has put together, let no man put asunder his maxim, and apply it to even our heterosexual marriages just as much or more than we do with homosexual marriage now that that has been brought into play. What we need to do in our time is we have to start praying as the church in particular. For a renewed sense of what God wants in marriage. And a renewed sense of what God wants in marriage, not on our own terms, but on the Lord's terms found in Scripture. Uh, To pursue health in our marriages will make a difference with those who are surround us in community, that is in our, our workplaces, uh, in our, our neighborhoods, among our family members, and therefore makes a difference in our culture. We in the church have to have a high value of marriage and, and pray that God would teach us how to be married well, how to love well with our heterosexual marriages in as much as resisting anything that has to do with same-sex marriage. Where we might start, around understanding marriage and better promoting it, is to start with a proper understanding of marriage itself. Now we've talked about the model of uh, that Christ promotes of marriage, and we've talked about the maxim for marriage, what God has put together, what no man put asunder. Now let's talk about the makeup of marriage. The makeup of marriage. God designed marriage to be glorious and beautiful. He designed it to be something like synergy. Synergy is when, you know, one plus one equals two. But synergy is one plus one is greater than two. That there's something about two people coming together, working together, being bound together spiritually, emotionally, yes, even physically, that creates something more glorious than the the individuals merely combined. And in here... The makeup for synergy shows up in three ways, all right, we want to talk about today. From Genesis 1, from Genesis 2, and Matthew 19, Jesus highlighted what, Genesis, what, what is described about men and women. We are meant to be image bearers, every one of us. And as Christians, we're be, uh, having the image renewed daily, day by day in Christ. But don't miss this. Genesis 1 says God created them male and female. In his image, he created them male and female. In other words, we're image bearers in our maleness and our femaleness. That's an important starting point for marriage. Uh, uh, We are meant to bear his image in our sexuality that's been given to us by our creator. Think about it this way. God is not sexual, but women reflect the glory of God in their femaleness with gentleness, kindness, wisdom. We could go on with all kinds of unique things that women often bring to the table. Men reflect the glory of God in our maleness with power, with intelligence, in a host of other ways. Put these two together, it makes for magnificent glory, from glory plus glory to magnificent glory when you put them together. In fact, I would suggest to you that your marriage is actually meant to draw out more of your maleness, more of your femaleness. That's what it's meant to do. And in that process, you become more glorious together. Second thing we'd say about the synergistic makeup of marriage is Genesis 1 and 2 highlight how men and women are to complement each other in their purposes. Remember, the woman and the man uh, are by each other's side, which means they're to complement each other relationally in a host of other ways. We could certainly say that sexually. We could say that in the roles that men and women play sexually, women bearing children and men uh, helping bear those children. But let me put it this way. There is glory in sexual differences. There's glory in that. And that's what the scriptures are meaning to tell us in this being made in the image, male and female. Now, Elizabeth and I regularly joke about this. In fact, we say that God loved us so much, he put us together. And when he did, he had a little laugh in the process. He said, because both of us are, you know, recovering control freaks and things like that. And he's, when he put us together, he said, well, that'll keep him busy for a little while. <laughs> but what I've learned through the years is that being married to my wife has drawn out a lot of the maleness in me. Has made me more of a man, more courageous. Uh, he's, it's made me a whole lot more relational. She's so much more relationally insightful than I am. I'm your dense guy. I mean, you're totally, you know, go Carolina Panthers, you know. And what, what are you talking about, woman? We got things to do with this football game, you know. She helps me to see people. She helps me to understand people. I don't understand, other hand, help her to see how we can move forward with the task. I'm particularly gifted in that as a man. Let's move forward with the task. Let's keep moving in this area. And the beauty of that is she's drawn some things out of me and helped me to become more male and masculine. I've helped her to be more female. And there's glory in that. There's beauty in that. The reason I bring that up is that too often times this kind of stuff is squelched in the same-sex marriage argument. But here's the third thing, Real quick that uh, we want to talk about, that the makeup of marriage has in its synergy, and that's unity and diversity. Marriage is a lot like a sports team, a good task team at a job. Everyone works towards a common goal with a common heart. But different people have different roles. Love has these two dimensions, unity of heart, but diversity as individuals. That's why we affirm in good marriages that they are equal in dignity, the man and the woman are, but they have different roles. Same-sex marriage eradicates all that I just told you. All the differences, all the image-bearing, all the sexuality, and diversity. In fact... It it redefines love in such a way that love becomes something psychological, not just physical. It becomes how I feel about somebody rather than the whole part, the whole person involved in the love process of marital love. As a result, with the growing changes in our time and the redefinition of love to just a psychological thing, how do I feel about you? What's, what's going to happen with marriage more than likely is we're going to move from same-sex marriage to, well, this guy right here, he not only loves that woman, but he loves that woman and that woman and that woman. Why can't he marry all of them? You see how the shift in the definition of love physically away from the physical to this more abstract psychological thing, takes us down some dark roads, even polygamy. There are no complementarian roles in same-sex marriage, which means you effectively eradicate procreation as a part of marriage. Same-sex marriage means sex is divorced from having kids. Now, if we were evolutionists and we're not, we would say this is a problem for the continuation of the human race in the long run. But we would say even as Christians, because we're principled from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that having children is a glorious thing and is a part of the different sexes encountering one another in the marital relationship exclusively. Even more, same-sex marriage is problematic for the good aspects of diversity. (laughs) Bet you never thought of that. Think about it this way. If we were made to be diverse in our marriages with male and femaleness, uh, you actually eradicate diversity in a marriage in the case of same-sex marriage. Tim Keller points this out that this is ironic. Given that in our time, we are celebrating diversity in just about everything you can imagine, but this one segment is actually squelching diversity. So the next time somebody says, why aren't you for same-sex marriage? You can say, I'm into diversity. I'm in a diversity in marriage, of sexuality in marriage, because I think that's right and good. You can see the problems that arise from all of these same-sex marriage issues. And that's why we can say that same-sex marriage is indeed sinful. uh, And it breaks the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is an aspect of that. And uh, marriage is meant to be an image-bearing activity in different sexualities complementing each other in roles, in unity, in diversity. (laughs) That's what it's meant to be. Now the gospel about marriage is that this is no surprise for us as Christians that two people or persons would come together in, in unity and yet be very different and in a love relationship do something glorious is exactly what happens in the Trinity from eternity. In fact, the unified Trinity, God in three persons, uh, is, is is this diverse Yet unified and complementarian gathering of the three persons of the of the Trinity, each in love for one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father and Son send uh, the, the the Spirit, who loves the Father and the Son, by serving them. In this relationship of the three, there is this glorious love that, as Jonathan Edwards says actually extends out so that from eternity they've been loving on each other and this love creates a community where love is shared and that extends to us as God's people. This kind of love is glorious where the uniqueness and the the unity of the Trinity makes it glorious in mutual love. That's what we aspire to be like, the Trinity. How we image God and his love in our marriages. While there are only two in our marriages and three in the Trinity, nonetheless, it's the same principle of loving one another, of giving, of serving. Now this begs the question then, Given this picture of what marriage is supposed to be, even reflecting the wonders of the Trinity, how do we respond to a culture where same-sex marriage is legal and now encouraged? Well, I want to do a few points with the final M of our time in the Master Plan. And here's what the Master Plan suggests. Here's a few points. First, with individuals we know that we need to distinguish and this gets back to the whole homosexuality sexuality argument that Blair brought up last week. We need to distinguish between the disposition and the act of homosexuality. I bring this up because all of us here are sexually broken sinners, and we have to start from that point. Rather than a superior self-righteous state, we start from the place of, I'm a broken sinner, even in my sexual life. And all of us, therefore, need salvation. But we as Christians know that salvation is, does not come by being your sexual self without God getting involved. In other words, sexually, salvation comes through a Christ redeeming us to be more holistic and to enjoy what God intended for us in the way He designed us. What this means is, in our church and in our lives, we need to welcome struggling sinners and cheer them on in fighting the good fight. Struggling sinners who are maybe struggling with homosexuality or even thinking about uh, same-sex marriage, cheer them on to fight the good fight. When I first got married, I was in a men's group with a guy named Tony. And Tony and I once in a while would have coffee after the men's group and, and uh, he was very honest with me one time. I didn't realize he finally shared that he had struggled with homosexuality even in his marriage. And yet God had brought him out of that and had actually healed his marriage and restored what was really broken. I found myself having to play the role of cheering him on, of encouraging him to keep fighting the good fight. Because we live in an age which has normalized this issue so much that it even pressurizes people who struggle with it. So, we need to think of how we can encourage people in this. And I'll tell you another thing. You've heard of the Syrian uh, refugee crisis that's going on in our world, which is a very serious thing that we have to pray about and consider how we can participate. But I'll tell you this. There's another refugee crisis that's already shown up in the church. It's the sexual revolution refugee crisis. And now with same-sex marriage passing, that's going to be even more intense and we in the church have to be prepared, even in our families have to be prepared, to get ready to love people who are victims of this revolution that's leaving dead bodies in its wake everywhere. Second, when we're in relationship with homosexual family and friends, and I'm talking about practicing ones, and if they're even getting married, we need to speak of honest differences with them but stay engaged in relationship with them. Agree to disagree, just like you would with abortion or euthanasia. We can't try to fix them, or especially when an argument with them. We have to be present with what Eugene Peterson calls a kind of subversive love, where you're in their lives, you're present, and you just keep showing up, saying, I'm here even though I don't agree with your life. I'm here best example of this challenge that we're all going to have at some point, and it's going to show up in your life sooner or later, is when you get an invitation to come to a homosexual wedding. Now, good people disagree on how to handle this, even among Bible-believing Christians, but I would say this, you need to think really hard about whether you're going to attend a homosexual wedding or not, especially if they invoke God's name. If they invoke God's name at that wedding, well, you might be just practicing idolatry by being a part of that in any meaningful way. My counsel is that if you're invited, you sit them down for uh, lunch or a dinner, maybe even them, at your friend and or their spouse-to-be, and you tell them, I'm not going to come, but I want to be in your life. I don't want this relationship to end, but I'm just not going to come because I just can't do it and my conscience won't let me. That's what you do. You're staying engaged, but there's tension, and that tension is hard. But that's the kind of stuff we've got to get used to living with in our time. So, if it seems unwise, don't go to a same-sex wedding. Nonetheless, what sets us apart as Christians is that we can say, I disagree, but I'm here. You know what, in Islam, and we're seeing it more and more in radical Islam, where they say, if I disagree with you, you're going to die. Or in extreme secular culture, it goes like this I disagree with you, I'm going to demonize you. But we're different as Christians. We actually say, I disagree with you, and I'm going to stay engaged and love you. I'm going to keep coming back because I think that's what Christ would do with me as a broken sexual sinner like I am. Third response. The third response is we have to get back to strengthening our heterosexual marriages. I've addressed this earlier. My friend Mike Krueger, who spoke here some months back, says it well. The thing that set apart the early Christians in the early church from all other uh, aspects of of the culture and Roman culture was this. It was their sexual ethic. We live in a strange new world. And maybe it's time for us to consider how we can be more proactive with God's work in our marriages heterosexually. Fourth, politically. Politically, we do have a response to this. And politically is this, we have to in this age actually start to promote and press our First Amendment rights to freedom of religion. If our religion from our Lord's mouth says marriage between one man and one woman, we should be free to live by that action. Uh, Freedom of religion is our out, and we should be free to practice our faith. Fifth and finally, and this is really the larger question, remember that marriage, heterosexual marriage even and especially, is meant to point to the ultimate marriage to come. This is the gospel point that we have to drive home, is where is this marriage thing going? What's the real point of all of this? And the real point is that one day Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he will be united with his bride, the church, as the one true bridegroom. And talk about two different kinds of persons. (laughs) Jesus, the holy, perfect Lamb of God, the Lord of Lords, God's Son, fully God, fully man, this glorious person to be worshipped, With the ragtag group that is us, the church, sinners redeemed by amazing grace at the cross. Talk about two really different kind of persons, if you will, but that's the image of Scripture that's coming, that we will enjoy forever with God as we are with Christ, our ultimate bridegroom, The master plan is really simple. We're made to fit with Christ in the end as his people. And we're made to fit in our redeemed differences. We are made to fit for eternal life and relationship that is deep and rich like a good marriage in this life is meant to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray for your grace now to come upon us. We have talked about a, a challenging issue. Uh, and we do ask you, Lord, to help us as a people um, to know how to respond in our time to the unique challenges we are all facing around this very sensitive issue. We pray that you give us grace and truth. You give us, Lord, holiness and yet compassion of all the combinations of things, Lord, that would lead us, Lord, to uh, make a difference in our culture by being different in the way we do marriage. Help us to love well and to struggle well with these truths today which challenge us uh, regarding same-sex marriage or even heterosexual marriage. Lead us, Lord, to real marriage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.